recording. We are recording. It's Nick Harcourt here for 88.5, our Here at Home interview series. And I'm very happy today because I'm a fan of these guys to welcome um, three of the original Gang of Four um, for this conversation. We're going to talk about a fantastic new box set. Um, but I should first of all introduce everybody. Uh, we've got Dave Allen, who was uh, the uh, the bass player in the band, Hugo Burnham, who's a drummer. And we've got uh, the vocalist, John King, uh, Andy Gill, who's the guitarist, unfortunately passed away about a year or so ago. And I want to talk about Andy as we get into this conversation as well. But first up, it is a real pleasure to have the three of you sitting on my computer screen this afternoon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dave is in Portland. Um, Hugo is just north of Boston in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And John, I'm guessing you're in London. That's right. So 1977. I know I was uh, I was 19. How old were you guys? 21. Uh, mm. uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was 22. I'm going to yeah. say, you're pleading the fifth a little early in this interview. No, no, I, we, I was just I trying to remember. I think we were all in a, in a similar uh, age group, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm the youngest of the of of the three, four of us. Um, yeah. John is the oldest. Then it was Dave, and then Andy, and yeah, well, Andy yeah. was a year younger than me. Yeah. So I was born in 1955. You all were, uh, except me. That's what I. Yeah. Oh, right. So that's what I mean. It's like it, it's sort of all sort of like like got together somehow. You know, like yeah. we're so of an age. So, so I was I was born in fifty seven. So I'm nineteen twenty in nineteen seventy seven, and I just remember it being such a bleak time, such a very bleak time in in in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, you guys met at university in in Leeds, and and I remember going up to Leeds around about that time as well. I had a pal who was at the Polytechnic there, and uh, you know I, I came from Birmingham, which I thought was bad, but Leeds at the time was, you know, not a particularly pretty place. Um, Tell us a little bit about that time and, and how the band got together. I know that Hugo, you were you were booking bands. Um, how, how did uh, how, how did it all start? Well, we were at Leeds University. Three of us were actually from the same uh, very similar uh, close place in Kent, in the southeast of London. Went up there to uh, study um, and met there. John and Andrew had known each other since they were teenagers at school, um, and I didn't meet them until we got up there. Um, Leeds was bleak, but it was also beautiful. I mean, gorgeous city, but faded, faded glory. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of places were being torn down, old buildings. Um, mm -hmm. The university was just the other side of the motorway um, from the Polytechnic, which you said you were visiting a friend at. Uh, the Poly was um, uh, quite a hotbed of creativity as well. So <laughs> Dave had come down from Kendall, the latest trip, right, mm -hmm. Dave? Mm -hmm. And then I met you. Yeah, and then you met me first. Because you'd put up a, a thing in... I the, had put up um, a notice in the student union, um, fast rhythm and blues player wanted, bass player. Yeah. Um, which was sort of code, really, for punk rock. I worked it out. Not even punk rock, but uh, Dr. Feelgood type music. So, um, yeah, he got it, and in he came. I was going to ask you about the, the music that you were each individually listening to at the time. Uh, I know Dr. Feelgood's a reference. John, what, what were you listening to? Who, me? Well, you've obviously just oh. referenced Dr. Feelgood, but um, 
uh, when I would, Andy and I used to love uh, reggae music, you know, yeah. like um, one of yeah. the most played uh, sets of records I had was a box set of the Trojan Story. Yeah. And, and I, I, I played that to death. I also had another much loved box set, uh, yeah. uh, which was the Motown Story. The Motown story used to, had the tracks and in between little uh, uh, audio uh, snippets, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, there's, a, there's a great bit where Marvin Gaye is introducing a song that he sang with Tammy Terrell, uh, <laughs> who died of, of cancer when she was like 21, I think. Yeah, very young. Uh, and uh, I remember there was this line, I used to play it, it seemed very poignant to me, you know. I like working with her and she was a great singer yeah. and he goes... In a long yeah. pause, and he says, "Besides, she was very pretty." I, and, uh, uh, and it it was so Motown uh, funk, of course. You know James Brown, mm -hmm. uh, and then on the on the on the white rock side, of course. You know every every band says it of our type. Velvet Underground, um, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and and I like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And, um, so Led Zeppelin one was you, you know that kind of white rock interpretation of blues music. And, you know, yeah. I, I, I suppose in this long list, yeah. the electric Chicago blues, you know, Muddy Waters and the like. So, right. uh, and those English, those British bands were blues, like Hugo and I, when we first really bonded about music, it was over free. And with Dave, it was the meters. Because Dave, you were, you were yeah, a yeah. mad guy. I mean, you know, I mean Sissy Strike is yeah. one of the masterpieces yeah. of modern music, isn't it? I'm trying to get a word in here. Hang on. Come in. Yeah. Come in, Dave. Talk about the funky meters. Yeah. I learned uh, to play, um, you know, like the meet meters. Uh, you know, I had I had their albums and would sit in my um, apartment in Kendall and um, learned how to sort of get it to be funky, as it were. And... Um, and then, as John says, um, the same thing for me with reggae, because I used to listen to John Peel a lot, and he would, you know, he he was great, and there was tons of reggae he would play, which I'd never really heard before. And so, again, because of the, you know, where the bass lines fit in, you know, like with reggae, it's it's it stops, and, and, and that's what entertainment sounds like. You know, it's got these breaks in it, you know, like, um, it's, it's funny John mentioning both Trojan and because uh, there were those great. He said the box sets, but there were um, there was Tighten Up volumes one through whatever, which was the Trojan best ofs. Yeah. Uh, my favourite was Tighten Up volume two, and then there was the uh, Motown Chartbusters mm. uh, again volume two, the one with the big silver sun uh, uh, cover. Um, yeah. That was the other one that I had as well. So what was the what was the album? Um, with the gorilla on the on the front. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, oh, that remember. was Trojan. Um, that was a that was almost dub style. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that it's interesting that dub music at the time was being, uh, I guess, discovered or rediscovered um, by a lot of the young bands that were coming out of the the punk movement. Um, uh, Hugo, you mentioned Dr. Feelgood. What, what else was, was uh, in your playlist at the time? Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, which I know wasn't terribly hit, but it was the first band I saw live at the Albert Hall back in 71. Um, and that was the band whose records I used to play along to when I got my first drum kit. 
Um, so they they were big for me. But yeah, the you know Stones, sure. Zeppelin. Um, Ze Led Zeppelin Fleet Three was the first album I and quite a few of my friends bought from Virgin Records, which is this new. Um, you didn't have to go to a record store. You'd send away for it. There was a big full-page ad in the back of the Melody Maker and the NME. And everyone at school was saying, oh, it's not going to be real. You're not going to get the turning wheel in Led Zeppelin 3. Um, right. So it was little things like that you remember. But, yeah. I, 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 have to, so I, I forgot to mention, of course, uh, the rock god Jimi Hendrix. And uh, Andy and I, when we were teenagers, we adored Jimi and... Uh, endlessly played Electric Ladyland. And he, when a, on the day that Jimmy died, he went to school with a black armband on. Uh, to, to, so, so it was kind of a mixture of Wilco Johnson and Jimi Hendrix was Andy's guitar style. So if he'd been here, he would have said Jimi Hendrix. Well, yeah. thanks for saying that. Um, we're making sure he's here by, by referencing that. And, and obviously during the conversation, we'll talk a little bit more about him. But let's, let's talk about that, those early days, the rehearsals, um, coming together and, and writing material. What did you guys want to do? What did you want to say? Well, I, I always think we had the most immense good fortune by being ignored for a couple of years. Uh, we, uh, when we started off, we wrote quite formulaic songs, more like the bands that we, like, more like Dr. Philbert, to be honest. It was, first bridge chorus, first bridge chorus, key change, out kind of things. And they tended to be really fast R&B, a few covers in there. We used to cover Day Tripper and Sweet Jane at the beginning. And so the beginning of being in a band is, is the thrill of it all. And working out how to be in a band, how to be on a stage. But after a while, and it took us a while, you asked the, the great question, why am I in a band? Uh, as opposed to how can I be in a band or what's the mechanic of being in a band? And I think, I think it came to all, all four of us at the same point. You know, there, it's, uh, things have sort of fallen together and we were able to start thinking about that. And, and I think the breakthrough was when we wrote Anthrax. And that was quite uh, an abstract idea. You know, it was written down, the idea was written down on a bit of paper. It was when... Um, uh, Andy and I used to, before we, before we got the rehearsal room, we used to work on an acoustic guitar and a cassette recorder. And so, of course, you can't play a feedback song on an acoustic guitar. But so let's have slabs of feedback, two voices doing contradictory things where one is commenting on the room over a really fantastic, groovy drum and bass part. So, so that's then... It came, it was down to, I can hand over to Hugo and Dave, it's down to, Hugo and Dave then came up with a fantastically groovy, propulsive part that then you could improv the other bits over. I mean, right. is that a good description of that, Dave? Yeah, I, sorry, sorry I left there. I, I was looking for the album that has the, the gorilla on the front of it. Trojan record, yeah. Trojan records, yeah. Was it that? No. Super 8. Was it Super 8? Yes. That's the one. Perfect. So I listened to that a lot. So, yeah, well, I mean, it was just it, trying to be, it wasn't, it sounded tribal, but that wasn't what it was trying to be. It was um, mm -hmm. just to, like, what John was saying is like, why are we in a band? It's like, it's be interesting rather than just repet repetitive of other people's ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, just the idea of a drum beat without hitting a cymbal or a hi-hat. 
alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, simple. So, so Super Ape, who was the guy behind that? Uh, I feel like uh, I should be Googling while we're, while we're doing this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, have a look. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, so that, that, that was the drive behind that, um, to not have the standard sort of, as John said earlier, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It was a bit more interesting to get away I from. Think, I think, again, just, you know, I've, I've seen, um, I've thought about oh. how it was that we came to develop our own sound. But I think what we did was that we applied a some sound. of the... Super Rape is a studio album by The Upsetters. Oh, The Upsetters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well done. Yeah. King Tubby. Huh? King Tubby is The Upsetters, yeah. 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 But anyway, the... Um, I think what loving funk and loving funkadelic and loving uh, uh, jam songs and loving the meets and stuff. I think what, yeah. what, what we, what we did without, I think ever having a conversation about it was apply the funk uh, um, aesthetic to rock music. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you listen to like say one, it's an entirely banal thing to say, but listen to one nation under a groove it goes along and yeah. someone comes in and someone goes out and someone and some repetitive lines come by. And if you can apply that sort of aesthetic to a loud guitar, propulsive, punky sounding thing, you end mm -hmm. up with something different. I mean, years later, people call it like punk funk or whatever, you know, like the Chili Peppers picked, well, they picked elements from, from us that they, that they riffed on. Yeah, they but borrowed think, a little bit. Yeah, and I think it was the aesthetic of funk but with the kind of guitar attack of Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. Is which, that, which, what do you think? Is that a good, does that sound persuasive? It's, so, it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've, said, I've said those very words frequently myself, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know, back at the time, of course, you know, the Clash were messing around with dub music as well. And, uh, yeah. you know, something that you didn't expect from a punk band, I, I guess. And, you know, when, when punk became post-punk, I'm not really sure. Maybe you would know better than I, but um, what were those early shows like? I mean, I'm, I'm presuming you were scrambling to, to find gigs. Yeah, kind of. They were, they were quite tough because, um, you know, politically everything was very fraught around us and the music scene itself um, Nobody was quite sure where one stood politically. Um, so we often had a lot of National Front, British National Party skinheads coming along who weren't sure whether they were supposed to be dancing or fighting. So there was always a real tension in the air, um, which was sort of quite exciting, you know, and, but it, it was almost expected it would go off at well, most gigs, whether we were playing or whether we were visiting. Um, it was always that. You remember, you remember the electric ballroom, right? in Camden there. Yep. Yeah. And, and there was like, um, the bodyguards were on stage and then all these skinheads jumped up and I had to hit one with my bass guitar. Yeah. And he had well a knife in his hand. Yeah. 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 Knife in his hand and I turn around and the bouncers have all disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was quite a lot of violence at there the time. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it was, um, at the very beginning of the, of this uh, recording, you know, you'd ask what it was like. Britain was an absolute shit show. I mean, there's, there is no, 
no comparison, you know, uh, economically and sort of materially to what life is like now to what it was then. We had one in five adult males was out of work. Uh, even a higher proportion of women were out of work. There was, uh, during the so-called winter of discontent, you know, there was rubbish, garbage piled up four or five metres high in Leicester Square. It was, it was a huge rubbish tip, rats running everywhere. Hull was dubbed Stalingrad because they had blockades of, of, of the port going in and out of it. Um, it was uh, it was eighteen percent inflation. There were sort of uh, double digit interest rates, um, and Leeds, the centre of Leeds, the very centre of it, had this great um, oval shaped building. I think it was called the Quarry Hill Flats, which we, for, uh, on absolutely zero evidence, believe was where Hitler was going to have his headquarters had he won the war. And 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 uh, it had it was like a sort of crumbling, uh, brutalist attempt to make a Renaissance walled fortress. It had four big gates to it, and if you got inside it, it was a, a rabbit warren of crime and deprivation and anxiety. Of course, it was a great place for students to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. and our rehearsal room in in the block set, there's a photo at the beginning of it of us looking yeah. sort of miserable and starved outside some building. I, I don't know, there were acres of leads due for demolition. Yeah. Uh, and so much so, uh, 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 the I used to share a flat with Mark White and Andy Corrigan of the Mekons in Leeds. And uh, we were wandering through the slums of Leeds, waiting for the tractors to come in. And as we walked along a road, Andy Corrigan was next to me and, and Mark White on the other side. Corrigan just disappeared. So there were three of us, and then there were only two of us. And he'd fallen down a hole in the road. And, and he, he only <laughs> was saved because his, his, uh, he was up to his armpits down a hole. There was a great seemingly bottomless hole that he'd fallen down. And we, that yeah. was what Leeds was like. Yeah, it looked like it'd been bombed overnight. <laughs> so, so, so with that as a backdrop... <laughs> <laughs> For going into the stu- for going into the studio to uh, to make your first record, um, t- tell us about that. Tell us about going into the studio and you know putting down these songs that you'd obviously road tested. I presume uh, most of them before you actually went into a studio. Well, we the first time we went into a studio studio was um, when we did the uh, um, damaged goods EP. Yeah, um, in uh, not Stockport. Where was it? Uh, somewhere outside, um, just outside Manchester. Manchester. Um, yeah. And we were there for two nights when yeah. we did that EP. So we'd had that experience. Um, and then when we signed the deal with EMI, the first thing we did was record At Home He's a Tourist, the first single, which we did at the workhouse on the Old Kent Road in South London, mm-hmm. uh, which we chose basically because that's where Ian Jury had done New Boots and Panzers, a record we all loved. Yep. Um, so we went, it was owned by Manfred Men. We went in there and did that, and it was successful. So we just said, right, this is where we'll go back to do entertainment, which we went in to do May, John? Yeah, but the, and it, it was slightly perverse because the engineer, Manfred Mann's engineer, hated everything that we did. He yeah. hated being in the room with us. He yeah. hated our music, and he yeah. hated us as individuals. Yeah. It, 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 it was... <laughs> And he wanted yeah, repo quite, on everything. Yeah. He was quite frank about it too. There was no. He wanted to what? Yeah, he wanted reverb on everything, and we were oh, like, okay. "No, we're not that band," you know. So. No, I mean, there was a point when 
uh, I think it really was to make him even more angry deliberately. He was he wanted to put this wash of reverb, basically, I think, to camouflage what he saw, this awful row. And so uh, we said, well, we don't want any reverb that comes out of those boxes. We'll make our own reverb. And we rigged up uh, in the toilet of the uh, studio. We dropped an SM58 microphone into the porcelain pan, a bowl of the... Of the um, <laughs> And then fed in a grot box of the of the vocal feed. We said we're not going to have reverb on anything except the vocal. So we fed the, the the vocal through a grot box and then picked up the microphone that was dangling just above water level in the pan of the bog. And, uh, uh, and they said that's the reverb. And that was the reverb. We it, I have to say it did sound like shit. <laughs> What a shock! But the real the real benefit of doing it that way was um, pissing off the engineer. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it, the, the thing was, it was what was really important to us all was you know being serious about it. We were very serious about wanting authenticity. You know, we we've gone a long way from being a, a, a band, a genre band. We've gone a long way from being an R and B band or playing like other people, and we and we. We knew that we wanted it to sound true, and there was a there was an art movement. I remember us all talking about. Uh, I think they were called Fluxus in in Denmark. who were photographers, and they they said that photography was a lot of fakery going on. You know, you zoom in on certain bits and you blow things up and you color treat and all this kind of thing. And so they had there was a movement then to like shoot Super 8 films, but you had to have no edits in it. You had to shoot from start to finish without um, any edits. You had to use the whole of the photo spool to even showing the, 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 the sprockets at the side. And that was kind of part of the aesthetic of the band. We thought, it, it's got to be like we played it. And therefore, there were no cuts in it. I mean, there were no edits in it. And, and even even worse, worse something like Pro Tools or, or, or whatever, or Logic around then, that would have not been allowed in the, in the aesthetic of it. That would... It had to be honest, and it, and it led which to lots hard, of things. Which made it quite hard to do, especially, I mean, we started with uh, Andrew and John would be in the control room playing, you know, uh, a guide track and singing, or Dave and I were in the room downstairs recording, and we had to get it right from start to finish. There was another, oh, yeah, we're going to put these two parts together. It was. I, I found it quite stressful. It, but, it, was, it, it was, was true. Yeah, I mean, that's right. It was stressful. And um, and especially when you've got a hostile engineer, yeah. Um, but what was good about that was he never ever volunteered. After a while, he never said suggested anything at all. He didn't he didn't say you know uh, he goes kick drum would sound a bit better if he put a bit of compression on it, uh, <laughs> or or it might be better if you mic the drums up, you know, differently, you know, um, and. Um, when many years later I, I did a lot of sound engineering work myself, I, I realised how difficult he'd been. I mean, how unhelpful he'd been. And that meant that the four of us then had to actually had to dig into our own um, belief and make it. I mean, it, and it, which is why, of course, it sounded, as Ian I said at the end of it, so difficult to deal with. I mean, they, they thought it was a demo. They did, when we presented the tracks, Ian I said, oh, that's great. When are you going to do the album? Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice demos thanks <laughs> <laughs> you know obviously you know those early recording experiences for for everybody um are you know 
really about learning, you know, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And, you know, if you're in with an engineer who's, you know, doesn't like what you're doing, that's got to be difficult. But uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, whether it's hanging a microphone into, above a toilet or whether it's, you know, um, learning to, to do those things for yourself to create the sound that you're looking for. Were you happy with what you got out of that? at the time i mean obviously in retrospect i'm sure as you were going back through things for, for this box set everybody thinks oh i i would have done that differently but at the time when you'd finished uh, entertainment were, yeah. were you happy with what you'd created yeah it was interesting because there were um other artists in in the studio uh annie what's her name annie annie from what for what band from the Scottish band. Um, oh, the Annie Lennox? Eurythmics. Annie yeah. And then they kept coming in and, and going, wow, you know, what is this? This is Was amazing. that the, the tourists? Yeah, I think the tourists, that's right. Yeah, the precursor to Eurythmics, yeah. 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 yeah, I think, I mean, at the time, finishing it, it was enormously satisfying. Yeah, because we ha we knew that not many other people, you know, engineers or label other than our A and R guy who completely got it and supported us all the way through, Chris yeah. Briggs. We knew we'd made something that was honest to us that we felt good about. Some years later, one would say, "Oh God, yeah, I would have loved to have heard it if we'd have done it this way, or if we'd have recorded it a bit more like we were live, or you know, wonder what it would have sounded like if Chris Thomas had produced it, which was one person we'd spoken to earlier on about it." But then the longer time goes on, the less I would ever want to hear it done differently. But this, actually, what you just said there, Hugo, I remember us talking about Chris Thomas, because Chris had done a fantastic job on the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Um, and, 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 um, but the Sex Pistols music has not aged well. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's Black Sabbath with uh, contrary lyrics on it. You know, essentially, it's, it's speeded up Black Sabbath. I like Black Sabbath. I'm not saying that to slag off Aussie or anything, but 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 that it, it wasn't the music itself was not even remotely radical or interesting or, or difficult. It just had the fantastic words of Holidays in the Sun. But if you took those words off and put the words of Iron Man on it, you you wouldn't be in a different universe. And Chris's genius was capturing fat uh, Marshall stack guitar stuff and fat uh, uh, Led Zeppelin style open mic drums. Uh, so, but that, that uh, at, the t at the time, I thought we'd created a masterpiece. Afterwards, as Hugo said, I began to have doubts about it. And my only doubt now, my only thing that I, I really re deeply regret about entertainment is on the song Glass, I use a metaphor. Uh, and uh, I, I had writing rules to myself, and I'd say, "Do not use metaphors. Do not use adjectives. You know, do not use." And I would, I'd have banned words. I had a list of words I didn't, wouldn't use, and I couldn't use, and and like that because it said, "I'm so, uh, I'm so something. I'm, bo I'm as bored as a cat. I'm so restless. I'm bored as a cat. Bored as a cat. I hate that line so much. What do you mean? I'm bored as a cat." I mean, I, mean, I, I think that's, that's your, that your most your most Dylan-esque moment, actually. Yeah, it? and that's that's that that's my only regret on the album. <laughs> so did you did you did you guys pretty much produce the first album yourselves with uh, not very yeah. much help from an engineer? 
Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. We, was, we, we produced to it. To be honest, it was we wanted. Yeah, that's right. The no, it was predominantly John and Andrew and our our manager at the time, Rob Wall. Um, it was a small control room, um, so there wasn't a lot of space. When, when Dave and I had laid laid down our parts, it was like, okay, the, but we could have forced ourselves in and try, but it's like, no, this is going well. Everyone plays their part. Sometimes you're up in the in in you know in the in the pool level. Sometimes you're back a bit. So absolutely, the, the three of them really really led the production of that record. Yeah, I, I think though that it's it, production is a, a curious word, and and all, all of us, all three of us here, and you, of course, uh, know different flavors of what being a producer means. And of course, sometimes. Producers are there to be creative sparks. Like, say, Brian Eno, he's there to, like, pull together a vision a lot of the time, but doesn't have a distinctive sound of his own. Sometimes, sometimes you you know, you've got uh, producers who have an amazing sound, like Noel Rogers, you know, and you, you, you know what uh, one of his records is going to sound like, whatever the act is, before he even steps foot in the studio. Yeah. And sometimes it's, in our case, it was let's keep it true to what it was like before we came in this place. Let's make sure it sounds like the last time we played a great show. Let's play, let's make it like that somehow yeah. or other. Um, yeah. What, what was the, uh, what was the initial reaction to, to the record? How was it received? It, Hugo, do you want to answer that one? Um, brilliantly. I mean, yeah, we were very, very fortunate, not just in the UK with the press, who initially had, like John said, luckily ignored us for quite a long time. But then they, I mean, Charles Charles Murray, who became one of our biggest supporters, I remember just recently when I was going through the boxes of stuff that we had for the box set, found his first review um, for the Musical Express. And he was very sort of dismissive mm. of what we were doing. Um, not unkindly, but just like, yeah, didn't really do anything for him. But by the time entertainment came out, um, it was universally adored, even by sounds. Um, <laughs> who weren't generally predisposed to to our what we were doing, and luckily that translated to the states. Um, we first went to the states in the summer, literally three or four days after we finished recording entertainment. We were off to the states on a self-financed tour. Uh, mm -hmm. We did six gigs with the Buzzcocks and twenty some on our own, um, and it was very very low budget. But I won't say it was low key, but People had only just heard the uh, Damaged Goods EP, but ferociously well received. And that got us um, a record deal with Warner Brothers. And that came out uh, in the following spring of 1980. And again, just people just fell for it. I mean, I was always a little bit surprised because it wasn't easy listening. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, was, um, it, was, it was strange really because we, yeah, we were this, uh, uh, we thought in America, absolutely unknown band had released a, a modestly selling EP. And there were these, the gigs became more and more and more full up and more and more compressed. And we were doing two shows a night sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, so on at 10 or 11 and on again at one or yeah. whatever, then driving on to the next place. So with that kind of uh, thing happening, you end up being quite good. I mean, you know, you, you, you just endlessly play. You never have a chance to even think about it. It's, it's just, you know, gig, next gig, gig, next gig. And, and each time, instead of it becoming a drag, it became like a, a, a juggernaut 
you know it was like we got heavier and heavier and louder and fatter until we ended up in, a, in the states the, the the great revelation of we were supporting the bus cops at the geary temple mm-hmm. and this, this it was the most nuts show ever really i mean it's like everyone went berserk at this thing and it, and it was like 110 degrees on stage it was like insanely day. hot yeah and uh, with all due respect to the buzzcocks who were happening and fabulous live and wonderful people they really did a lot for us um during that sort of year eight, 18 month period but um i think so we, how, we took them out that night that's how we broke out anyway you know when it, yeah. i was um, uh, harassing that college somewhere outside of leeds ilkley Ilkley, yeah, said, I really want to, you know, get the band uh, opening up for the Buzzcocks. And uh, this this guy, whoever's the producer of the show, so he's like, no, no, you can't do that, you know. But I kept harassing him. And then finally we got there and uh, we played. And then uh, a few days later, I got a telegram from Richard Boone, the Buzzcocks um, uh, manager, um, saying... Uh, you've got to come on the European tour with us and stop. Yep. You know, it was like it, like it, it's like an old, old, you know, it's a telegram stop. It, you know, it's just this, this stop. It was and, quite funny when we turned up there because we turned, we, we we just started to build a PA for ourselves. We took take our equipment everywhere, and we turned yeah. up to Ilkley, and it was the night in Leeds that the Jam were playing, so nobody was anywhere but Leeds that night. Uh, um, and it's like, oh, hello, who are you? Oh, we're the sport band. No, you're not. Yes, we are. Yeah. No, you're not. We don't have. No, we got them from. No. Yes, we are. No, you're not. Can we be? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he really liked it. You know, he really. Yeah. Liked it. What What about touring America? I mean, John, you were referring to the the fact that you just kept playing and just playing and getting better and better. Um, obviously, a completely different country. I mean, you know, we share almost share the same language, but you know. Coming, coming here uh, in 1979. I know John, you and Andy had been here a couple of years before. You'd, you'd come to New York, I think, uh, right as the punk thing was happening, and really saw what was going on with CBGBs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but what was it like bringing these songs um, to to America and, and bringing them to uh, you know a completely different uh, country? Well, I think I think one of you mentioned the, the trip to America. I mean, um, in 76, I was in the year above Andy at, at, at Leeds. We were both studying fine art. And I got a grant to write about Jasper Johns. I, I, in the end, I wrote nothing. But it covered the cost of flying to New York. And uh, uh, Andy got a grant to do a photographic study of Gothic architecture in northern France. And so he spent that money. <laughs> He went the other way, right? <laughs> he spent that money on, on, on a cheap flight. And we, we had the good luck that a friend of, a friend of mine was a, a very talented jur- journalist called Mary Harron. Mm-hmm. She was the daughter of a super famous Canadian comedian and uh, had, was a journalist for New York Punk magazine, of which I've got, I think, issues one to ten upstairs, which all they ever published, which had like photo strips of Debbie Harry in a relationship with Jerry Ramone, you know, before they were famous that kind of thing. And she had just broken up with, I think, the drummer of the then unknown Patti Smith group. JD. And so, so we got in CBGB every night. And 
which was a dump, of course, but it was full of talented people. It was and a dump. I think what, what the American art punk bands did, they needed to break America. You had to break Britain first. So there was a symbiosis of this kind of spiky, difficult uh, sort of music. And I think, you know, I think I always thought this was more of a kind of an American band in a funny sort of way, you know, because all of the primary influences other than Dr. Feelgood and Led Zeppelin were, came from the US. And it didn't surprise me that Hugo and Dave has become Yankees. Right, you guys have <laughs> lived, lived, lived here for quite, quite some time now, right? Touring America. Well, it's a long way between shows. <laughs> yeah. It was, well, we played someone like, on that first tour, we played like the Rat Club in Boston. Yeah. And um, I, I have to say, every time we, we went, the place was, was sold out more or less everywhere. Some place, there were some empty rooms um, where there were infill dates. But what, what always seemed to be the case was that there was always a group of people in every city that had really dug out hot music, just like we all dug out hot music, you know, just like Dave dug out the meters. Yeah, you yeah. Know, living yeah. in Kendall. I mean, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you weren't playing, you know, Northumberland windpipes, were you? Well, you know, in Kendall, there's no uh, people of colour, so... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it, was, it was not what, what there were. We, we managed to find those people. They came to find us. The, the, the comparison is more like um, people like Keith Richards and that when they were getting records sent direct from chess records, they made the from the Marshall Chess, to get these records that you couldn't get in the stores in England. So it was like an underground scene, um, the same thing. There, and just before us... Uh, going there, uh, the police had been literally right before our squeeze had done that that circuit because we were all with the same agency, FBI. In fact, squeeze put sugar in the petrol tank and they dropped it off at the airport for us, which caused uh, <laughs> quite the first. We were dry. It was a Friday afternoon. We were going to play the Hot Club as our first show in Philadelphia. Oh yeah, we broke down. This is in June or July. Broke down in the tunnel coming out of Manhattan on a Friday afternoon. Oh, <laughs> somebody had put sugar in our. Yeah, it was it was, it was it was squeeze. I'm telling you, you know. <laughs> but anyway, damn, the hot club. We got there at 11:30, almost midnight, and it was too late. But um, we played for like half 20 minutes, and people loved it. They'd stayed for us. Um, I think that was the first time we saw Pylon, wasn't it, John? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. had come yeah. up from uh, Georgia, and we've we had a long relationship with them ever since. But uh, they'd had to play twice running, and as soon as we arrived, we just jumped on and used their back line and managed to get about five or six songs in before uh, the fire marshal shut the place down. It was so late and so hot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that was everywhere. It was it was an underground thing. People knew about this new punk rock. It wasn't even being called new wave then. Yeah. It was that early, but. They came out to see it. Um, it was it was extraordinary in every city we went. Like John said, a couple of spare, you know, empty rooms, but that was really the exception to the rule. Yeah. So before we, before we jump into talking about this box set, and I know I'm, you know, um, perhaps running a little long on this, but if you just uh, indulge me, um, let let's talk about the the next album, <clears throat> Solid Gold. Um, you're talking about obviously the first album getting such great reception in the UK, coming out to the States and touring it. Um, where were you at when you went into the studio to do Solid Gold? Well, the, 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 I, what, none of us wanted to repeat ourselves. 
Right. I mean, for good or bad, you know, I mean, I, uh, I think we all felt that we had done something that was, a, 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 you know, it was itself and it, and it was kind of hard to unpick it. You know, I mean, I, hmm. I, 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 it is an album. It's not a, it's not a secret series of tracks. I mean, the, the, with the exception of my metaphor, the, 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 the songs, the songs are meant to reflect on each other. You know, they're all kind of riffs on, on something or other. So the next one, we, we were, all of us love funk music and uh, wanted to make something that's really heavier and more propulsive. We recorded, I can't remember whether we did Solid Gold before we did To Hell With Poverty. We did. Yeah. 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 We did yeah, so we've got this idea that to get something that's really more propulsive and massive sounding, but but without again without it sounding like uh, and I don't sound like I'm dissing Chris Thomas's thing, but without it sounding like that kind of thing, <laughs> and sure. um, and Jimmy Douglas' name came up, and Jimmy Douglas was you know a legend. He was the great producer of Slave, and of course. Aerosmith and lots of uh, uh, AOR kind of acts, but but to us he was a he was a hard-on funk producer. Yeah, and and not only that, but they we were able to go into Studio Two of Abbey Road, the legendary studio. We we're on the desk that the, the the Beatles albums recorded was Dark Side of the Moon was done, and then our shitty record. <laughs> no. Except it didn't turn out to be a shitty record. It, it was it it had tracks on it like. Again, with the, we had a set of rules of what we were doing, and it was very much, I think this is more to do with Dave and Hugo, that album, it's the sound of it, was, you didn't mention, Dave, that your love of Can. Uh, oh, either. yeah, Can. So, like, you sort of, if you threw into a pot Can and Funkadelic and Slave and all that kind of stuff, and again, the rules, the aesthetic of funk are mm-hmm. start and go on and on and on like Washington Go-Go, and stop when you feel like it. And and so what we all want was like, came out, it went with that great, that fantastic poppy bass line yeah. over Hugo's relentless, sort of like a pre-sampling sample drum beat. And then again, and then it, 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 it's, it actually, it was thrilling to think, oh, God, that sounds really modern. I mean, it sounds kind of, it still sounds, it still sounds fresh. Yeah, it does, and it was one of the it was one of the best songs that we ever played live. That was constantly a real favourite for us and audiences. Um, and that talking about recording album, John right. said, I mean, it was I enjoyed it a lot more, much less pressure. We'd all got that first thing out of the way, um, and felt. I mean, you know, we'd been touring like buggers, you know, all the way up to it. So we were very tight and comfortable and um, solid together. We trusted each other, I think, a lot more by then. And also having Jimmy Douglas, it was like having, I won't say a referee, that's too much, but it was like having an older brother in the room who'd say, okay, okay, we'll do it this way, Um, which was really good. I think it was good for all of us. We all learned a lot from him, but he will be the first thing. He learned something from us as well. So I think being in that room was amazing. Yeah, It was very, um, I was really surprised actually. I was. I was half looking forward to and half not looking forward to someone who was really going to stamp their sound on the band, you know, like, you know, the extreme, like someone like Mutt Langer, you know, recording chords string by string, you know, and uh, doing vocals first and drums last, you know, some sort of weird way of working and not letting one in the room. But, and he and I had these conversations. He said, 
these schoolboy lyrics. I remember him saying this to me. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, 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 said, I, I said, these aren't schoolboy lyrics. This is Bertolt Brecht. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I even, I even uh, brought in a book of Bertolt Brecht poems to show him. So I, said, I said, this is a rip-off of Bertolt Brecht, mate. I, I, I want to anyone else. I, I want to talk about I want to talk about the lyrics in a minute, but before we do that, I want to jump back very quickly to Dave and, and Hugo to talk about um, you know obviously the rhythm section of the band and how you guys evolved as partners in crime into yeah. this into this album. I mean, the I'm going to work... be right. I'm going to be right back. I'm just going to grab a glass of water. I'm getting all dry. Okay. <laughs> maybe Hugo what, you can, you what, can start. what we were able to bring to that I mean it just goes on what I just said earlier we had been playing so much um, live that and I mean any great rhythm section will tell you you, you, all, you don't have to look at each other to know what the other person is going to do um, and we rehearsed things well we pushed through whether it was disagreements or different ideas and the songs developing um, and working with Dave was, I mean, I was, I was the luckier of the two in that partnership because he, he really could play. He was the real, certainly earlier on the real musician with a lot of, um, a lot of good background in his playing style and, but simplified in a way, cause you know, he used to do a lot of jazz brunches and things like that growing up. So, uh, it was, I, I don't know. It was very simply easy to play with Dave. Um, I, I mean, just observing the two of them together, because I mean, it wasn't like, say, with Jimmy. You know, you had Jim, Jimmy would have his flights of genius, like, like and, and Mitch Mitchell and Thingy's role would be to to pick up and follow him in a, like, in a almost like jazz kind of way. You know, he'd be doing his thing, and and it, and, and then the that would follow. In fact, with us, the rhythm section, Hugo and and, and they defined what was possible. It was, it's kind of the other way around. It wasn't, it, and, and you had to have it. And it, it was, was our creative, our creative agreement and aesthetic was there aren't really lead players in this band. It's right. four notes that work together to create the chord. Yeah. And on that album, you know, thinking of, um, uh, some songs that I, I personally think the, the, be, the song I most enjoyed my, through my, our entire life career was, He'd send in the army, um, mm. which is um, the drum and bass parts of that are, are sensational and, yeah. and very austere. Dave, you come back with your glass of water now so you can pick this up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. that. You know, I mean, me yelling into the microphone as well. It's like, you know, the lyrics and, yeah. and then the way I played the bass and Hugo... I mean, you know, Hugo and I gelled really quickly, I think, from the beginning, you know, like beginning with um, um, the EP and then yeah. entertainment. And, um, you know, every time we were out uh, doing shows, it was um, amazing. I mean, we just look at each other, basically. You know what I mean? Um Talking about that particular song, there's one, um, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, but there's one in particular of us playing on the Old Grey Whistle Test, doing that song, doing He'd Send in the Army. And I think it's probably one of the best things of us on YouTube because it was so much about tension and release. I mean, just 
Andrew's. Mm-hmm. Is he going to hit it or not? Um, live again. That was another one that just went on and on because we we went with the song. It was a lot of space, and John just relentlessly hitting yeah. what ultimately became um, the refrigerator. <laughs> well, it, we went through bits of metal to refrigerators, and then now, uh, most recently, it was a uh, um, what was it? The microwave, microwave, wasn't it? Microwave. Thank you. Well, we started yeah. with the microwave, yeah. and then you know, the, we. Would, oh yeah, I would play the only. <laughs> Uh, on the uh, initial and a bit of scaffolding pipe and then on, on the microwave and Andy would play the offbeat. Yeah. So uh, we were both trying to put each other off. Mm-hmm. David and Hugo were then keeping this thing really tight. And it was, the, the discipline of it was, it, it sounded, yeah. it sounded improvised, but it was really, really, really very really sort of mathematical the way we approach it. Except for when it stopped and sometimes we'd stop playing. This, this was for, you know, a minute. I mean, we'd, we'd stop altogether. And so he'd be on the stage and I was not going to hit the on beat. And so, so to try and put Andy off <laughs> and he would then try and put me off by counting out the time. And then I, the I'd literally tape. sit there as still as I could waiting, but counting in my head. No, just, and, and if John, came, if he came in on the floor, which is where he should have done, it was like, okay, lovely. If he didn't, you know, inevitably just look at me and give me a look. It's like, eh. yeah. <laughs> We, we, talk, we talked about the, the on-stage relationship between um, uh, the rhythm section, obviously, Hugo and Dave. Um, John, talk about the, uh, the, the on-stage relationship with, with you and Andy. I mean, obviously, you guys had a, a, a lot longer playing together in, in other incarnations of, of Gang of Four after this initial period. But at, at that time, it sounds like you guys were challenging people, t- challenging each other, I should say. Yes, but what we also wanted to do was to use the whole, uh, to use the stage uh, pro- properly. And um, I think having been to, all of us having been to hundreds of gigs by other acts, the most boring ones are the shoegazers and the people who just get locked onto the microphone, you know, and you, you've got to love the music to endure the performance almost, you know, because it's so boring. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have movement on it, um, and the sparring, which is a bit like call and response in blues, the sparring between uh, my lead vocal and then Andy's commentary on my lead vocal. Sometimes there would be the dual lead vocals, and so to reflect the music in this search for somehow that authenticity, we'd start we'd start running backwards and forwards across the stage. I mean, like. So there'd be three microphones, left, right, and center. And then um, we would be swapping microphones the whole time. It was a really difficult thing for the, our front of house sound engineer to, to do because we'd always be moving around, moving around the stage really vigorously and often accidentally or sometimes deliberately running into each other. I mean, uh, quite physical. I mean, it, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't unusual to be spattered in blood uh, at the end of a show with one thing or another, uh, which is, of course, great, great fun. Uh, and it looked, we knew it looked good. I mean, it's nothing better than having blood on stage, is there? And, um, well, <laughs> when you're 25, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember seeing um, Iggy Pop, you know, cutting himself up with a bottle, and I thought, it's fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. And um, so... That, I kept handing him a bottle on stage, but he wouldn't do it. 
yeah. So that, that was the, the idea was never give the audience a chance to rest. So they, they didn't know where you were going to, could, they couldn't relax. And when it got big in the end, like me, Andy, and Dave, of course, we, three of us would often be, would be at the front on each different mic. We then all scatter like nine pins somewhere else. And then sometimes we'd sort of walk towards the audience. And I remember quite a few shows where the audience would actually back away from us because <laughs> they were sort of like terrified of this sort of, <laughs> these maniacs. <laughs> but we weren't, ma- we weren't maniac, but it was like we were determined that every tiny moment of the show was going to be uh, a surprise. Tell us a little bit about where, where you were at um, lyrically um, for, for Solid Gold. You know, we started off this conversation talking about, you know, 76, 77 and what was going on in the UK. Uh, by 1980... Uh, we had Margaret Thatcher as the Prime Minister, and things got worse. Well, it's, 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 it's a curious thing, because things were awful in the 70s under the Labour government, and they were awful in the 80s uh, under a Tory government. But they're, all, they're awful in a kind of different way. But her awfulness was, was quite liberating, because you know we were that, that then we then became extremely active in uh, rock against racism. You know we were uh, the the government would bring in very very uh, reactionary um, legislation for everything from against abortion to uh, homof- homophobia and all that kind of stuff. Uh, sorry, not homophobia again against uh, the promotion of homosexuality, uh, the laws against that type of thing. And so we, we were quite often involved in demonstrations against of that type, and of course the national rock against racism movements, and which we also were in our personal lives in there. So, but uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever wrote a song about Margaret Thatcher or, or any other politician. Actually, you know, it's the. the uh, as I joke, said earlier, jokingly uh, with um, Jimmy Douglas talking about that album, Solid Gold, being more like Bertolt Brecht. Well, it wasn't quite true because it was more. I think uh, um, that influence was on both the records. Trying to trying to say to write things that, that are about how you actually live and how you actually think about yourself and the people around you is really difficult if you. Not really difficult. It, it's it's a challenge not to talk in cliches about anything, and it, and the, the easiest challenge is to say we're all great, and it's only because of some demonic uh, politician who runs a country. I mean, uh, you've you've endured uh, four years of uh, a demonic presence in the United States, and um, yeah, he's just a figurehead. You know, I mean, he's a figurehead of a of a, of a mindset of millions and millions of people. So it's it's the mindset that's really uh, the, the thing to talk about. I mean, on Solid Gold, there's one of the songs of Cheeseburger. That that came out of a pool game. I mean, uh, I, I Andy and I were playing um, pool with these guys in Barney's Beanery in um, in Hollywood, up from the Tropicana. Yeah. And and. Uh, we played a couple of tricks. We played, it was my, winner stays on. So Annie and I were really bossing the table because we were 
we were quite good at playing pool because obviously being in a band, you haven't got much else to do. And um, <laughs> uh, he, um, these two guys, you know, were trying to get on the table and they were paying for the table and then, then they wanted to bet money on it. And so the, the lines in that became a montage. You know, they go, you know, I, I, I run the table, high numbers, low numbers, eight ball break. You know, uh, you know, I move from one place to the next, you know. Oh, I don't probably keep down the price of gas, and, and it, so I was, I was, I was entranced by this rubbish. And but it became about a song about loneliness, you know, because they were just all these guys were boastful losers. So, so it's 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 observational, but at the same time, you know, tying it into something a little deeper. And, and you know, you talk about uh, a particular figurehead in politics, whether it was you know forty years ago or just just recently it's always there's something much deeper to, to be talking about than just whoever that figurehead is at the moment um let's let's talk about this box set and thank you for indulging me in the conversation leading up to it um when when did the concept first come together when did the idea for first come together it's quite a while ago um in 2018 uh through a friend of john's we were introduced to an attorney in los angeles who was specializing in helping acts get their copyrights back under the uh, new, the relative new at the time, 35-year rule. Um, and a lot of labels were not happy about it, uh, but a lot of acts were either not together or not talking. Um, but we took that opportunity. Uh, we were with Warner Brothers for North America, and it had been in the old days uh, a great relationship. There were wonderful people there when we were actually working directly with them. but. It had become a different place. Um, we weren't, we'd been in the black. In other words, we'd recouped our advances. Um, nobody was losing money anymore. Um, and yet they were still, the deal was not very contemporary. We weren't um, making uh, enough money. Not that we were making a lot of money, but we were making less than we should have done given uh, what we were make, what we were selling, etc. Anyway, so we got out of that deal. Um, and John and I and Dave had been talking about, you know, we really need to make something that represents us from these copyrights. Now that we have control of it, we can decide who we want to partner up with, which in the, uh, eventually became Matador Records um, for North America. Um, and let's do something that is really authentic, <laughs> going back to the way we made entertainment. But let's do because there had been a collection or two before that weren't um, that weren't that they're not as strong. And we want to say, where was the peak of the band? This was all before Andrew passed away. We started working on this, um, and I would say we really got into the weeds uh, probably around September of 2019, when when the idea was really coming together. And we were doing all our digging and research and talking to people. Um, and John was creating the concept of the box itself. Um, and then Dave and I were looking for stuff. We were talking to people, getting stuff. Um, so it took a good year putting together. And there was quite a spoke in the wheel when Andrew passed uh, last February about how we should do it and what we should do. But um, it's a very, very honest, true and successful encapsulation of that 77 to 81 period when the band was complete and at its peak. Um, and it was Andrew at his greatest. 
So, so when, when Andy passed, did that stop things for a minute? Did you have to regroup to figure out how to, how to move on? Cause you'd obviously talked about it for a while, but you'd only recently begun the actual process. How did you move forward from that? I think what, you know, this producing something like this, uh, has many stages initially. The, the, the first thing was the, the overall concept, what was it going to be like, you know, and uh, I um, was, I found this uh, industrial designer in, in Denmark who, who was really, really talented to think about how, how it might be, how something might be presented. So before, uh, when, when, before Andy died, the work was really being done on, on the sort of shape of the thing rather than the sort of words and what it, what might you know well the essays and things in it and um had some really crackpot ideas which i couldn't actually make work i mean I, i'd been to a dada exhibition and i'd seen a a, a print a magazine that was seven meters long and uh, i went i was thinking initially of making the whole thing like a, 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 to make it longer than that just to get the world record of an eight <laughs> meters long eight meter long uh, printed thing, uh, but that was, that was very expensive. And then a concertina type thing, where we just all sort of fold out. Right. Again, the one sheet of paper all folded up. And then a pop-up book tried uh, as well. So all the, to turn all the photographs into pop-up um, things, like the um, Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog sometimes has in, in New York. Mm. And you, you open it up, and it's, it's and it's like Hugo and Dave on their drum on drum and bass, and then me and Andy. Understood, yeah. But that was really expensive. And then, but then thinking well, that wasn't really zeitgeisty enough, really, and to make it up completely recyclable, to make it up cardboard, uh, to make it look like it felt like at the time, and so that defined once that happened, Hugo and Dave were just coming up with amazing stuff because because they know i mean i don't know anybody but they they were talking to you know michael stipe and and and, and you know, vanessa, oh, vanessa from pylon and 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 henry uh, roll they were they, all those people and they were so eager to or so keen to contribute uh, as just receiving an email from the Hugo dave saying can you can you um can you um, give us a give us a memory? Uh, uh, what what would have happened, of course, if Andy hadn't been so ill? He'd been he was very ill before that happened. Of course, you know he had an autoimmune disease. He had a high blood pressure. He had a drink problem. He was overweight. You know he had all sorts of issues that meant he was he was struggling. But obviously, one I would have. Had he not died, I would have thought he, he there would have been more uh, direct words about that thing from him in there, you know. But um, uh, so we did have to consider that. But the main thing was to make it all about the years when we were at our best. That was 77 to 81. And when Andy's greatest work was in 77 to 81, I mean, you know, and uh, I think it's a fitting tribute and he, you know, to, to him and to the four of us at the time. So you've, you've collected together um, a lot of photographs, as you mentioned. I actually haven't seen uh, a physical copy of this, but I was sent a, a PDF of a, of a lot of the stuff that's in there. And there's some fantastic photographs uh, and obviously memories from people and uh, uh, 
reviews and clips from you know the various music magazines that we've talked about during this conversation um and uh it, it looks fabulous at least on this uh, on, on this pdf that i have um but but what about the music i mean obviously you've got entertainment and solid gold remastered um but then there's a singles lp uh, and I think perhaps most interestingly for, for me, because I've never heard it, this double album of the live at the American Indian Center concert you did in 1980. Talk, talk about that concert and why that was one you felt would add something to, to this. Because at the time we were so fierce live and we didn't record a lot of ourselves live. I mean, the, you know, there are bootlegs all over the place. But this was a really good quality. It had been recorded by uh, a chap called Terry Hammer, who did it for, was it KUSF it might have been? Sure. It was like a live show that they went out while we were playing. And uh, I'd come across him once or twice over the years. People have put us in touch. Oh, yeah, I did that. But, so I reached out to him because we thought that would be a great thing to share, um, make it official. Did, and, did you uh, have it at the time? Had you, had you heard it before? I'd had it, yeah. I'd had it from various well, parts. I, I, I had heard it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. go on. Sorry, no, I was going to say, the other thing was, uh, Andy loved and was obsessed with the uh, Plains Indians and the Lakota culture. And uh, he used to, he wasn't a great reader, but he used to wander around with a copy of uh, Bury My Heart, Wounded Knee. Uh, and uh, at school, I was at school with him from teenage years, he, uh, I him doing a silkscreen print of the great uh, Lakota war leader, Sitting Bull. And when we arrived in this venue, I mean, I was thrilled to be there because it was the centre of Native American activism in the in the US at the time. That in only nineteen in the early seventies or mid seventies, the, the Native American movement had occupied Alcatraz in the harbour of San Francisco. It was one of the first moments you know uh, where that that kind of uh, anger was it was expressed and the american indian center was uh, at the heart of it and uh, we walked on stage to the sound check and we're looking up and there was in fact one of the photos has it there was a picture of of the great warrior sitting bull and it said landlord underneath it uh, and that that i thought that is a that is a gang of four image, you know. I mean, it's, it's a archetypal image of um, of this uh, of this man, and then a narrative that sort of brings surprise with it. And it was just it was fantastic to be there, and um, it was random with people, wasn't it? So, so I'm, I'm I'm totally looking forward to hearing that. Obviously, there's there's also a, a C90 cassette. Uh, which bring, which which brings back all, all sorts of memories of of being uh, a teenager or a young adult, I guess you know, with cassettes and C nineties. Of course, you could just about put an album on each side, depending on you know, unless it was some prog rock album that went on for bloody ever. But um, you, you could get we heard, <laughs> which we all had. Admit it. <laughs> I know you'd be recording. Going, Damn, I didn't get the last fifteen minutes of that album. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, but I mean, that was my, that was my, I pushed that one because we had these demos again that I'd collected or kept over the years. Um, and another friend from Leeds who is an absolute prat rat who did actually have in his possession one of the originals from our um, rehearsal room with uh, one of quite a lot of them on it. 
And I thought this would be a nice little piece to include, put it on a cassette, not least because, you know, a lot of the cool kids are doing the cassette thing again. I mean, yeah. And I just thought, okay, great. Something for some people to get annoyed about because they can't play it. Lovely, <laughs> you know. Um, and we, you know, we hand wrote it, the original thing on it. Um, and I, because we originally, we had enough to put onto a C120, but then nobody could find anyone to manufacture a C120. So I had to spend a day um, editing all these demos down in, in hopefully a way that nobody noticed the cuts, but there was quite, there was quite a bit of rambling going on. So nobody missed it. Um, got it down to fit on the two sides. And there were the very early cassettes we'd done, uh, uh, demos, I should say, we'd done in our own rehearsal room in Leeds, um, produced, I think mostly by Andy Corrigan, the uh, Mekon singer. We'd set up our own system with some old stuff in the room. And the others were a couple from, uh, demos we did for Polydor uh, in their studios when they were wanting to sign us, and the rest were songs uh, that we'd actually done ready for to go to Abbey Road with for okay. Solid Gold. So, I mean, they're fun. And I mean, some people said, oh, well, you know, why didn't you ever record these songs? And if you listen, most of them actually did end up as uh, other songs. So, so, I mean, I think they were important to include because you can say, okay, which one did this become? Yeah. Well, and if you, and the if you, elevator, which uh, EMI really wanted us to record because it was just a straight ahead rocker. Um, that, of course, you know, if EMI wanted it, we'd say no. No, 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 I'm glad we didn't. But uh, the um, I, I was uh, as a side project, you know, thinking of the hunt for authenticity. I, I wondered, I'd read an article about the people who collect 78 Shellac records. <laughs> Which, they, were, they were still making Shellac records until the mid-60s. Uh, and, and so I looked into uh, make, if we could make the album on a 78. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I did a lot of work on that. And I, I spoke to some real specialist people about seeing if we could do it on a 78. Again, that found it because to get uh, all that, that stuff on, you'd have to have about 24 Shellacs. <laughs> and it would have weighed about sort of 400 pounds. And, uh, <laughs> weight. Not the money, the weight. weight. The weight, yeah. And then, uh, then I, looked, I thought it'd be great to do an album, a, uh, a vinyl album, but running at 78. So I looked into that. Um, because 33 and a third is, it, you get pretty good sound quality. But if you can cut, you know, like we know, the, of 12 inch singles, if you can run, the faster you run it, the better the quality it is. So I, I, I found that that was also not technically going to run. <laughs> they were fun conversations when we were going through the process. And yeah. uh, I, I used to get these little texts from our manager when John would bring some of these ideas up. He'd just go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th I think, the, you know, the essence of it was just that something like that cassette is, is about authenticity. That's actually how, as you just said, that's how people heard music. Uh, 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 yeah, that's what you did. You demoed onto cassettes, and I'm yeah. presuming uh, at some point you had like little four-track Tascams or something. And yeah, I don't, did, I don't think we ever did went that way. We were, were because by the time we were, um, David um, moved on to Shriekback, and we were we were actually working out of a small eight-track in uh, East London. Ah, yeah. um, you know, like we booked it out forever. So yeah, the four-track Tascam thing, we, we sort of jumped over that one, didn't we? Right. Yeah. yeah. But it, but it's it's um it is it is interesting how 
uh, you know, the most enduring technology really has been vinyl. And vinyl still absolutely sounds better than CDs. It hasn't got any aliasing in it, it hasn't got processing in it. Sounds better than DVD. Sounds miles better than um, the uh, any of the streaming media formats, um, which are compressed to to buggery. Yeah. And that, I mean, those Solid Gold and Entertainment were um, mastered at Abbey Road um, from the original quarter inch tape. So, you know, it, it was a real hunt actually to try and find to dig those up. It was it was quite. Um, uh, an effort because the workhouse where we recorded the album burnt down in the late 90s and all the 24 tracks were destroyed and um, at one point we weren't sure whether there were any quarter inch um, masters of it it did actually emerge in the uh, files of, uh, of uh, Abbey Road oh, so you were fortunate that there were copies in, in storage no no they were, the, they were the original masters. oh they were the originals they, yeah. were the original, they had been moved from luckily they weren't stored at at, at the workhouse. Um, because they've been mastered yeah. at Abbey Road originally. Got yeah. it, got it. Well, that, that, that makes sense. Well, thank goodness that, that they had them. And I know you've collected, you know, uh, posters, essays, artwork, liner notes. And then the other thing that I, that I saw that I know that you're very particularly uh, uh, proud of, uh, John, is that the lyrics are reproduced correctly. Yeah. I mean, I... I um, when we started off, I, I, I couldn't really remember all of the lyrics. And um, I looked online, being lazy, I looked online at some of these sites that sort of, you know, do it thinking I could just cut and paste them. And I was quite surprised at how bad they are and how wrong they were. And obviously they've been done by some machine editing thing, some, some bit of software, software had done it. So I thought for the first time ever, um, it would be good to have the lyrics approved and authorised as they as they were written because um, they you know they were written up, you know with extreme attention to the structure. I mean, like many of the songs, as you can see, obviously aren't really written like songs at all. I mean, they don't have verses and they don't have choruses, um, and a lot of the time. The rules I would have when I wrote them was have no rhymes in it at all, which is quite a difficult uh, little challenge, you know. And um, so it was really important to to um, to get that to get that on the page. And so every page has got the the, the approved lyrics, and then it's got uh, an anecdote next to this to the song or a memory that relates to that song from either from Really, from someone that we know, or someone who, some musician who's been influenced by, it. and then a then a factoid. Uh, so, uh, as an example, could we get asked a lot about these on uh, ether? Uh, uh, the final line of ether is there may be oil under rock hall, which is a mysterious line that I, uh, uh, I think we've all been asked endlessly, what, what on earth is that all about? And um, so, the factoid is that in the 1950s, the last act of British imperialism was to claim a, a rock about the size of a, of a small house in the middle of the Atlantic called Rockall, covered in guano. They landed two Royal Marines on it and then declared it was the property of the British Empire. And, yes, they, uh, and they, because it got, gave them the, the ownership of the uh, continental shelf around that rock, 
for the oil. And all the oil, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's been in dispute ever since. It's, it's still to this day in the international courts between Ireland, Iceland, and Denmark. They all contest the British ownership of this island, which is just covered in bird shit. <laughs> um, and uh, so, and, and having put that in there, they discovered oil actually about 10 years after there may be oil under rock hall with my suspicious mind. And so I think, you know, it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, those are uh, forecasts of Nostradamus. I think if you look carefully at the John King lyrics, Nostradamus. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the lyrics, that it will, it did predict the great uh, COVID pandemic. You knew what was coming. You saw it all. It's all in there. You just have to dig. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for "To Hell with Poverty" to become real. <laughs> oh, well, while, while we're talking about "To Hell with Poverty," I do just have to say, as a as a fan, if you can look around my wrist here. No. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, oh my goodness. Yeah. That's that's my uh, that's oh, my yeah. and that's that's actually the typeset from the uh, single as well. I think. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. I think yeah. we should send our publisher around to your house. Yeah. <laughs> 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 then, so John's saying about the authentic lyrics, and we 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 got a we got a note from Grill Marcus. You know who Grill is about it because uh, we sent it to him. And he said, I mean, Greel knows Gang of Four longer and better than almost any other writer around. And he says, um, well, of course, I have found mishearings. I always thought it was, I do love a new purchase, which is what I thought for years as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. love a new purchase. But it's like, oh, thanks, Greel. I wasn't the only one. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, yeah, the authenticity is the core of it. So, so uh, you know, at, at the end of this process, obviously, you, you have this uh, the, this fabulous-looking limited edition uh, box set, which is, you know, collecting all those, uh, the, well, those two albums and the other uh, early work. Uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, the packaging as well. And, and I know, before I let you go, um, the aesthetics of, uh, of Gang of Four um, was reflected in the artwork, was reflected in how you presented... Um, uh, e everything. Um, so how do you feel about how you've got this all together now into this package? I know that John, you've done a lot of work on this and you said you engaged, um, uh, a Danish, um, uh, who, who, who worked on it with you? Well, I worked with this guy uh, called Piaga and right. he is an industrial designer on, on the, on the box bit of it. So that, that was the, right. So, 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 so you've got a book, it's an American A4 size book with 100 pages in it. And, the, and then that thickness defined the other half size of the box set. So you're working on that basis. And I had to, we had to work out how to make a slot that could fit the, the cassette. And having done that in a way that was could possibly be manufactured, then, then worked with a guy called Dan Calderwood in the UK, who's a fantastic run-zone company, um, uh, graphic designer. I mean, he does, for example, the boxes of the Game of Thrones, things like that. And he is a big fan. And uh, he just, uh, uh, I was talking to him actually this morning because we're working on finishing off the CD. There's going to be a CD edition, not... not um, the that was my box. next question, actually, but yeah. yeah. And um, the, the, the point of the, the, the aesthetic of the, of the book was to to give a flavour of what it was like to be doing that 
that thing between at that time. So it was quite scrapbooky, and there were Trump lawyer effects in there, and the bits like um, Hugo's drumsticks on the uh, the page. There's a one spread, and every page would be really hard working. But there's a photograph that was taken by the U.S. Department of Defense of the great rally in Madison Square Gardens in 1939, of 20,000 uniformed swastika America Firsters. Yep. With this huge uh, portrait of George Washington, who they claimed was the first fascist, with swastika flags and American flags. You know, it's a travesty of American democracy. But Hugo sticks with uh, these sticks fight fascists, which, of course, is uh, Hugo's Woody. Woody Guthrie. Uh, he had actually on his guitar said, this machine kills fascists on yep. his guitar. But so it, it was trying to say this, whatever it was we did, there's relevance to what's happening right now, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I salute any musician who's going to take work in, say, the Black Lives Matter thing in a way that, that, that we thought was important to do when we were doing Rock Against Racism. You know, it's, it, these struggles continue. And music and culture is at the heart of it. So, so Dave, let me just ask each of you to to, to wrap this up. Um, the process of, of of doing this and looking back, um, not just at the music, but as you know, who you guys were. Who you know, we we change and we evolve. Hopefully, um, mm-hmm. looking back at the 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 man you were, the musician you were back then. Um, what what's that been like? And I'll start with Dave, and maybe you know, work our way through it. Um. I'm not quite getting the question. What? Well, looking back, looking back in time, remembering, you know, the, the time, who you were. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, I mean, I turned up in Leeds. Uh, like we said, Hugo and I were talking, you know, I, I met Hugo. Um, and then it somehow worked out really well. And um, so... You know, looking back right now, it just seems to be, well, it was like 40 years, right? It's been a long time. And um, it's always been good. Um, I, I, I really, really, really enjoyed the, uh, the 2005 um, when we reformed the entire band again. And you did the Return the Gift album. Now, now, just very quickly, if I can insert, you re-recorded the songs, right? Was that because of copyright issues and all that? Yeah, we, we owned the masters. Right. And we could do whatever we want because it was beyond in the contract, you know. Right. You, there's a certain amount of years where after that you can, you can um, re-record your own masters. So, yeah. So, so back then the, the original lineup got back together, did the album and toured and festivals and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 That was a good one. You know, everywhere we went was like packed and festivals and Coachella. It was fun. A lot of fun. You know, it's just a pity we can't get out right now because of the COVID thing and whatever. Um, but it looks like 2022 might be okay, according to Richard. Um, you know, like I said earlier, before these guys turned up, um, was, um, you know, can we get out to Europe and do all the festivals, you know, uh, hopefully back in the Pixies because uh, that's his other band, uh, you know, his big, big band. Um, so yeah, you know, 
but other, other than that, it's like 2020 was, was like hmm, lockdown. Uh, 2021 is still locked down um, here. Just got to get out and about and uh, get <laughs> get back to playing. You know, absolutely. Like, get just yeah. get go somewhere, anywhere at this point. Yeah. Um, sure we all we all want to do that, right, guys? You know, Hugo. What what was the trip down memory lane like for you? Um, I think what's been really good about it is certainly for this past year, the three of us being working closely together to do something to celebrate and re re not rehash but reinvestigate what we were doing and how we were doing it and over the 40 plus years i think what's a real strength as a team is what we've done separately mm -hmm. over the years um we've all done different things um mostly um indirectly related to what we were doing with gang of four i think john's probably the one who's moved away furthest during his other career from it. But uh, everything was down to how we started as a team. Um, it was, as Dave said, it was great, really refreshing and really encouraging when we came back together for the first year or so of the uh, reunion in 2005. But doing it again now as old men, relatively old men. Older. Um, older. <laughs> uh, it's, we're very lucky to still have this relationship and still be doing creative stuff together. Absolutely. John, maybe I can get you to wrap it up for us. I think that the, the, for me, the overwhelming uh, feeling was two things, really. One was emotionally, you, when you see the PDF and you look at the book, the photographs of the four of us, we were a really tight crew. We really were great friends. Um, uh, we all loved each other. We all uh, entertained each other. The, the, the overwhelming um, quality of, of the photographs from brilliant photographers is one or other is always smiling uh, uh, and enjoying each other's company. You know, and and it's oft, uh, uh, nearly always the case in bands that you sort of fall out and you, you end up being unkind to each other and all that kind of stuff. But remembering. It there, it was this. That was a time then when we were brothers. So that was my. I found it very cathartic, and 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 again in the light of Andy's death, it was nice to, to go back to a time when, you know, we were absolutely our, our lives were totally interwoven and positive. Then on the intellectual side, or the creative side rather, is to to have done something that that has uh, that I'm really proud of. You know, it, it, it's uh, it's it's a remarkable blessing to have been able to work, in my case, with three other amazing musicians who made me look good, mm -hmm. and 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 hopefully we all made each other look good. And so that's those that my big takeaway. And I I I'm, I'm, I uh, this has been, as we say in the book, a labour of love, and I think. That's why it's a limited edition. Anyone who buys this has got to love it. I mean, this isn't for everybody. This is just for aficionados. Well, and you and you were a gang of four. I mean, that's yeah. that's who you were at the beginning. I can't let you go without asking one final question because we talked about maybe going out on tour in 2022. You're going to have to find someone to play guitar, obviously. Have you begun yeah. that oh, process? Oh, I haven't thought of that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that is certainly something that will exercise our, our thinking 
if we if we if we do that, which I think we'd all be really positive about, we will really do that because it will be something that needs to be really respectful but different and original. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure as a as a fan and as a, somebody who's made my living in this business playing music by people I like. Case in point, Gang of Four. I have your lyrics tattooed on my wrist for some strange reason. But um, uh, it, thank you so much for taking the time to just talk about what it was like, what it was like making those those early records, those early shows, and then looking back 40 years later and, and making a definitive uh, collection of, uh, of, of what it was like. So it's great talking to you. Thanks so much.